Alright, you can take out your Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 12. John 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Lesson the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of providing us with a place to gather. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of gathering us together as your people. Lord, now, as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would do what only you can to open up eyes, ears, hearts, and minds, that we may receive this for what it is, the word of God, and not the word of man. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way, may it be your truth going forward to your people, and may it uh, bless and build up and edify your saints, and may it draw others to you. We pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> So we pick up again with our series in John, uh, picking up now in verse 20. Uh, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and he has come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he has now been hailed by the people as the king of Israel, very likely with the hope that Jesus would now liberate the people from their occupation under Rome. But as we saw last week, Christ's purpose was not to be the kind of deliverer that the people wanted. As he'll discuss further in this text, Jesus came to conquer in a different way. And in fact, he calls all of his people to follow in his footsteps. So let's look to the text, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Jesus is sought by some Greeks. These are likely Gentiles who had nonetheless come to some level of faith in the true God. As we see in verse 20, it says that they had come up to worship at the feast. Now John doesn't tell us why they were seeking Jesus. Uh, there's a number of possibilities. First might simply be curiosity. Remember that after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, uh, the arrest warrant going out for Jesus, uh, then the triumphal entry as he's been hailed as king, Jesus has been the talk of the town. Right? This is what the people are buzzing about. They're wondering if he's going to come. 
Uh, so it could simply be curiosity. These Greeks have heard the reputation of Jesus, and they want to go find him and see what all of the fuss is about. Uh, but there's another possibility. If you remember, John records a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Christ's ministry, while the Synoptic Gospels all tell us of what we argued was a second temple cleansing, which occurred after the triumphal entry, right at the end of Christ's ministry. So this event, if there's enough space between uh, the last section and this section, this second cleansing of the temple may have just happened. Now, why would that be important to the Greeks? Well, if you remember, the court of the temple which Christ cleansed was the court known as the court of the Gentiles. And that this was as far into the temple that a non-Jewish person was permitted to enter. And so Jesus cleansed the court of the Gentiles. He drove out those who'd been buying and selling there, uh, basically doing commerce and not really allowing the Gentiles to come and have a place of prayer in the temple. And so as Mark records it, Jesus declares as he cleanses the court of the Gentiles, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So if this event in John, this seeking of the Greeks, is taking place after this second cleansing, it might very well be that word of what Jesus did and what he said is what is now prompting these Gentiles to come seeking him. For here then you would have a religious teacher directly concerned with the status or treatment of the Gentiles before the God whom they have come to fear. Right? Jesus cleansed the court of the Gentiles. He wants a house of prayer for the nations. Well, that's us. We are the Gentiles. We are the nations. Jesus cares about us. Let's go seek him out. It's possible. Now, whatever the cause, these Greeks are seeking Jesus, and they come to Philip to ask for an audience with Christ. Now, again, we're not told why Philip in particular. It's been speculated that it might be because Philip has a Greek name. Uh, or because they were simply business associates of his from Bethsaida. Uh, in any case, they come to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, and the two of them go to Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour has come. Notice, this marks a shift in the language of Christ. We've seen him consistently saying, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. Jesus escaped, John tells us, because his hour had not come. That's what he told his mother at the wedding in Cana. Why involve me? My hour has not come. Notice here now, the coming of the Greeks seems to mark a shift. For now, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in this, this glorified, this glorification, Jesus is referring to his own death and resurrection. And we pause to note that throughout John's Gospel, this has been a common way of referring to to Jesus' work, right? He will be glorified. Now, that is literally true, for after the resurrection, Jesus will ascend back to the Father, 
to be seated at his right hand in glory. But as D.A. Carson notes, his death was itself the supreme manifestation of his glory. And that is an odd way of thinking about it. For if you had been a spectator there and had seen Christ dying on the cross, having been whipped and stripped and beaten and now suffering a painful death, there would probably not have been much glory to look at. But those looking now in hindsight with the eyes of faith and with the full benefit of the revelation of God in his word regarding the meaning of Christ's sufferings, we now look back on the cross and we do seek glory. For this was our Lord, our Savior, purchasing our salvation, dying in our place, made into a taunt and a horror for us. This is glorious. And so we sing of the glories of Christ dying on that cross. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus then gives an illustration to describe what his work is going to do. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus uses an illustration from everyday life to explain what's going to happen, what he is going to do. And Charles Ellicott comments on this. All knew that a grain of wheat, though containing in itself the germs of life, would remain alone and not really live unless it fell to the earth. Then the life germs would burst forth, and the single grain in its own death would give life to blade and stalk and ear of corn. Its death, then, was the true life, for it released the inner life power which the husk before held captive, and this life power multiplying itself in successive grains would clothe the whole field with a harvest of much fruit. And so Jesus uses this illustration to describe what he is about to do. In order for a seed to bring about life, that seed must be planted. It must be put into the earth to die. Otherwise, that seed will remain alone. It will remain a single seed. But if the seed is planted, if the seed lays down its life, so to speak, new life bursts forth. And life is then multiplied, it spreads, it expands, it produces much fruit, it produces a great harvest. And so Jesus explains this is what he is preparing to do. He is preparing to be planted. He is seed, and if we could mix biblical metaphors, he is the seed. Jesus is Abraham's seed through whom the entire world, including these Greeks, including these Gentiles, will be blessed. Jesus is the seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the serpent. Think back to that first gospel promise, Genesis 3, 15. 
Jesus is a grain of wheat preparing to be planted in order to bring about a great harvest. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. And it, it was essential that this particular grain be planted. For there is no salvation apart from the work of Christ. If this seed is not planted, there is going to be no salvation for sinners. If this seed is not planted, there will be no salvation for the sinners of the past who have been forgiven by God. We covered recently in Romans 3, in midweek study, that those who had been saved under the Old Covenant were actually saved by God only through His divine forbearance. Remember Romans 3.25 says God had passed over former sins. And that this actually brings the righteousness of God into question because it makes him look like an unjust judge. Right? Hebrews 10 tells us that the sacrifices of bulls and goats, right, those animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant, never really cleansed sinners, never made true atonement. They could never perfect those for whom they were made. And so the forgiveness of God toward the Old Testament saints was based upon God's divine forbearance. And Paul says that the righteousness of God, right, the justness of God in overlooking those sins has now been demonstrated through the work of Christ. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, that is, an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that takes away wrath. It's a reference back to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of atonement on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies. Right? And this is what demonstrated that God was not being unjust when he passed over former sins because he was looking ahead at what Christ was going to do in making propitiation for sinners. So you see then that the salvation of the Old Testament saints depended upon the planting of this seed. And that same is obviously true for us, for those who are uh, in the future from the time of Christ. There is no other covenant. There is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. There is no other path to salvation, no other path that leads to God as anything other than judge. Christ is the only way. But you see that unless that seed was planted, it would have remained alone. Unless Christ accomplishes our redemption, there would have been no salvation for sinners, no resurrection harvest. Christ remains alone as the only perfect man. And so Christ was willing to die. For in his death on the cross, God was setting him forth as a sacrifice. And God's justice was satisfied. True atonement was made. He was set forth as a propitiation, to make propitiation by his blood. This was what all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament had been pointing to. Christ 
made propitiation. He was the sacrifice that took away wrath. And so Jesus died and was buried, but like a planted seed, life burst forth. He rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, fully accomplishing the salvation of all those whom the Father had given to him. And so the picture that Christ uses is that of a great harvest, great fruitfulness. He was the kernel that fell to the ground and died, and the result of this will be the multiplication of life. The crop that comes up will be a great crop of righteousness, a great harvest of righteousness, and that is, that crop is the people of God. It is the multitude which no one can number, greater than the sands on the seashore or the stars in the sky. Christ has ransomed them, purchased them, redeemed them. They are his inheritance, part of the reward for his sufferings. They are his brothers and sisters, and they are to be like him. And scripture reveals to us that this, in fact, was the purpose of God from eternity past, that Christ would not remain alone. For Romans 8.29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right, we are predestined for what? To be made like Christ, to be conformed to his image, so that Christ would merely be the firstborn of many brothers. Right? For us to be the fruit that is produced by his death. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so this then is how Christ came to conquer not through military force, as the people seem to have been hoping. But Christ came to conquer the world the way that seed conquers a field. Death and resurrection. And truly, this seed has borne much fruit. This seed is continuing to bear much fruit. For Christ founded a kingdom that he said is like leaven which works its way through the loaf until the whole loaf is leavened. And we have the prophecy that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2, 14. Through death and resurrection, this is the means. For unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So this is how Christ has conquered. This is what he did. And we see in the next verse... This is the pattern that Jesus calls upon his people to follow. Read with me from verse 25. Jesus says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Right? If you love your life, you lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you keep it. For eternal life. Notice that is the same principle that is modeled by the seed. That in the wisdom of God, death 
is the necessary condition for the generation of life. Now, while this, of course, applies to Jesus in a very unique way, it is also applicable to all of his followers. For as death is necessary for seed to produce life, so too is it necessary for us to be willing to die to ourselves if we would truly live. Whoever loses, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if you've read any of the Gospels, you've undoubtedly heard this phrase or something very close to it. Again and again, we hear Jesus hammering this point home. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Again, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Same thing, Mark 8, 35, and Luke 17, 33. So to love your life in this way, to love your life in this world, is to seek to live life on your own terms. It is to consistently pander to self-interest. It is to have an idolatrous focus on self. It is to cling to the misguided idea that you can be as God, that you can be Lord of your own life. To love your life in this way, it is to live according to the flesh, to continually have your selfish, sinful nature be the one that's calling the shots. Now many people hear Christ's call to come and follow him, and they think, that looks too difficult. <laughs> to die to yourself, to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek when reviled, to forgive, to become a true worshiper of God, to surrender my life, and they hear that and think, that is too much. I'm not willing to give up my life like that. That's a waste. And so they think that they are in some sense preserving their lives by choosing to live on their terms. But Jesus says it again and again. You are seed. And the only way for a seed to sprout, to find life, is for that seed to fall to the ground and die. If you try to cling to your life in the way we've described, the result will be the loss of your life. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits? his soul. Clinging to your life will not bring you life. You will be left with nothing but a dead and shriveled husk, a dead kernel. But if you will plant the seed, if you will die to yourself, put your sinful nature in the ground, so to speak, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you will live. And all of this, of course, 
is a metaphor for becoming a Christian. Jesus' death and resurrection becomes the pattern that all Christians are to follow. For just as Jesus literally died and literally rose again, this is the picture of what happens internally in the heart of every believer when we are born again. Our old man, our old self, our sinful nature, that person we used to be before we knew Christ, that man died. He was crucified with Christ. That is not who we are anymore. He was planted in the ground, and the result is new life. For just as Christ was raised from the dead imperishable, so too we are raised to newness of life. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and we walk by the Spirit. So we see death and resurrection. It's not only what Christ did, but it is the pattern he has laid out for all of his followers. Although we still sin in this life, we who have been transformed by Christ are to count ourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And since we will not be sinless on this side of glory, we see that the call for us to die to self is a constant one. We must pick up our cross daily and follow Christ. Every single day presents us with countless opportunities. Right? Every situation gives you an opportunity to choose to die to self or not. Somebody says something that really bothers you. How do you respond? You see something that you know needs doing. Do you do it or leave it for someone else? You know the right thing in a situation. Do you do the right thing or the selfish thing? Do you order your life according to the priorities of God? Is Jesus Christ the captain of your life, or have you sought to usurp that place? Has there been a mutiny in your heart? Picking up our cross daily means continually choosing to not let your sinful nature call the shots. The desires of the flesh, the desires of our sinful nature, must be continually mortified. That means killed, made dead. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? Whatever is earthly in you, that means whatever arises from your sinful nature must be killed. It must be crucified daily. Kill your sin. Take up your cross daily and follow Christ. For Jesus says, this is the path to life. Now Jesus applies this to eternal life, which we'll come back to in a moment. But we must note that this is also true here and now. This is true in this life. Selfishness, sin generally, will never deliver what it promises. 
Selfishness will never deliver what it promises. Ordering your life around yourself will not provide you with a meaningful or satisfying or fulfilling life. It cannot, for you cannot mock God, a man reaps what he sows. If you sow seeds of sin, you get a harvest of corruption. And this life of selfishness will not satisfy because that is not what we are made for. We are made to be worshipers. This is inescapable that we will worship something. Now, when our hearts are rightly ordered, we will be worshipers of God. He will occupy that place in our hearts. This is where we will find true meaning. When our lives are oriented toward that for which we have been made. As Augustine famously said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. This was God's original design. But sin has broken this communion with God, and sin seeks out all manner of substitutes for God. One of, if not the most common, being that of the self. So the person who loves his life in this world is a person who denies God his rightful place in his life. It is a person who refuses to give to God the worship and service that he is due as our creator and our sustainer and our God. And it is therefore an idolatrous, right? think of idol worship, an idolatrous focus on self. You are taking yourself and making you the substitute for God as you serve self rather than the God for whom you have been made. There is no life in this. The person who lives this way, serving themselves as God, will not find life. They will not find it here, nor will they find it in the life to come. For they will all stand before the judgment seat of the God whom they have denied. We are seed. We are not meant to cling to that seed. We are meant to plant it. We are meant to be sown in service of Christ and his kingdom. To borrow from our previous sermons, we are to pour out our lives on Christ. We are to pour out our lives for others in the name of Christ. We are to give and to serve, Philippians 2.4, not looking only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in the logic of heaven, the reasoning that is completely contrary to what our sinful nature would have us do and believe, we find that in this there is life. For we will find, as Christ has said, that it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive. We will find that there is joy, meaning, and satisfaction in life, not in the path of selfishness, but in following the footsteps of Christ, pouring out your life for others. Dying to self daily, being planted in service to others, to Christ and his kingdom. Not that someone who gives will automatically be blessed. 
For those who would give begrudgingly should not expect to find joy in it. Those who serve others while keeping a tally of how much they give compared to how much they think they receive, such people will not find joy. Those who give expecting praise and thanks from others in this life should not expect to find the joy and blessing that Christ describes. It is very possible to give much of yourself, but to only become more embittered that others do not reciprocate. But when you give with an open hand, when you give of yourself freely and generously, as an overflow of the abundance of grace that God has poured out on you, when you give freely, aiming first and foremost, simply to please your Savior and to glorify your Father who is in heaven, then you will find joy. Self-forgetfulness is the key. Aim your service at God. Work as unto the Lord and not men. Bring your life in every part into conformity with God's will. The fact is, our God is not a malicious God. He is not simply seeking to steal our fun, to make us miserable. The path that he has laid out for us, though it is hard, though it is riddled with trials and battles and sufferings, this path is the path of life. For when we cast down the idol of self and devote ourselves, heart, soul, mind, and strength to loving God, we are restored to our purpose. We find what we are for. We are for God. We are made for the glory of Christ. Colossians 1.16 And we are seed, made to be planted. Cling to your life, refuse to plant, and you will have a dead and shriveled kernel, a lifeless husk. But be planted for Christ and his kingdom, and God will bring a harvest. You will find life. Verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Right? So that worship of self, that supposition that we can be our own God, our own master, that idea must be displaced. We must be servants of Christ. And if we are his servants, we must be his followers. So the challenge for all those who would claim to be Christians is this. Brothers and sisters, are you following Christ? Are you following him constantly, consistently, in every area of life, in every setting that you find yourself in? Or do you find that there are times where you place your service of Christ on hold in order to follow someone else? Are there certain people who bring out a different side of you than what you typically like to show on Sunday morning? Are there certain people 
around whom you do not follow Christ? Are there people or places where your fear of God is exchanged for fear of man? Are there certain settings where the approval of men becomes more important to you than the approval of God? If so, then consider, who are you following? Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you a follower of fill in the blank, that friend? Do not be deceived. You cannot serve two masters. To be a follower of Christ is not a part-time gig. It is not something that you can put on hold. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord on Fridays, then he is not your Lord on Sundays or any other day. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. So to get very practical, what ought a Christian to do if they have a friend like that? Right? Someone they know is a bad influence on them. Well, Jesus tells us exactly what to do with things that would lead us into temptation. He says, if your right eye caused you to sin, do what? Pluck it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus calls for drastic action in fighting against sin and temptation. So if certain places are a temptation, cut them off. If certain people are constantly a temptation, hard as it is, it may be wise to cut them off as well. And here's where you'd say, well, pastor, I need to be salt and light. I need to be a witness to this person. We're called to make disciples. But just remember that you are the one who brought this person to mind as someone who has been influencing you. I didn't name them, you did. You've not been discipling them, they've been discipling you. They're not becoming more like Christ, you're just becoming more like them. Now, of course, that is not to say that Christians generally should not be friends with unbelievers. Right? We absolutely do need to be salt and light. We absolutely do need to be reaching out, being a consistent witness, being good friends, showing the kindness and grace of Christ with those who don't know him. But we also need to be honest with ourselves about which direction the discipleship is really going. It may simply be that you are not yet at a place where you are mature enough to be the one to witness to those people or to witness in that place. If you recognize that as the case, then consider pulling back from that place or those people. Find some friends who will build you up, friends who will help you follow Christ. And perhaps once you have matured and are not so easily shaken, 
consider reaching out to those friends again. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. There are no part-time servants of Christ. We must follow him in all places and around all people. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here now we return again to the promise of eternal life. Christ lays out his life as the pattern. Jesus would literally pick up his cross and lay down his life. He would then be raised from the dead and ascend back to the Father, where he is now honored by him. Jesus says his servants must follow his example, and glory of glories, the end will be the same. The end will be rewards from the Father, just as it was for Christ. So look to the life of Jesus as the pattern to follow for every Christian, to follow the footsteps of Christ, to pick up the cross daily, dying to self, and look forward to the end. For just as Christ was raised and exalted, so too shall we be. To live is Christ, and then to die is gain. And see again how contrary this all is to our, uh, our sinful nature. Right? What would we naturally think is the path to exaltation? Not this. Right. What is the true path to exaltation? It is, among other things, refusing to be self-exalting. If you seek your own glory here, if you make a god of yourself, you will be dishonored. You will lose your life and everything that you thought you were preserving. But if you will die to self, follow the path of Christ, Jesus says, then you will be where he is. And the Father will reward you. Now, not to place undue emphasis on this part of things, but just consider this for a moment. Picture the richest, most powerful, most pompous, self-exalting person on earth that you can think of, right? In all of their earthly glory, all their luxury, their fine clothes, their entourage. Now think of how their glory pales in comparison to literally any saint presently in the presence of Christ. What is the path to exaltation? And to really get the picture, you would not compare them at the height of their earthly glory. You would need to compare the final state of that self-exalting person. For if they do not come to Christ, if they would continue serving themselves as God, they will lose everything. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose or forfeit his soul? All of that pomp, all of that wealth, all of that earthly glory is going to be left behind. They can't take it with them. And so all that awaits for those outside of Christ is suffering and torment in the lake of fire. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Dying to self is the path 
to life. Exalting Christ is the path to our own exaltation, as Christ says, to be honored by the Father. So where to begin? Right, if you were here wondering, how do, we, how do I do that? How do I not forfeit my soul? How do I not forfeit my life? Where to begin? Dying to self and following the path of Christ begins with the recognition that there is nothing that you can do in order to save yourself. It begins with the humility of the tax collector in Jesus' parable. The one who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but cried out, beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is through faith alone that we are justified. That means to gain a right standing before God, through faith alone. God promises to forgive his people because of what Christ has done and is doing for them. Jesus Christ was the seed planted to bring about a great harvest. He came to purchase salvation for his people. And so it is through his perfect, law-fulfilling life, it is through his sacrificial, atoning death, it is through his death-defeating resurrection, and through his effectual, ongoing intercession at the right hand of God, that all who come to him in repentance and faith are forgiven, cleansed, and received as the children of God. We must note that there is no way of living, however self-sacrificial, that can earn salvation. Jesus Christ has purchased our right standing before God, and there is no other way. And we receive that work of Christ. It is applied to us by his Spirit through faith alone. So truly dying to self in the way described by Christ begins with faith begins with being credited with Christ's righteousness by faith alone from there then as we are transformed by the Spirit we walk the path of discipleship seeking to live like Christ so to bring this all down to put it as simply as possible we believe in Christ we confess our sin to God we ask him for forgiveness and we trust the promise that all who do will receive forgiveness and eternal life. Christ has then commanded us to be baptized upon profession of faith, to be joined to the people of God, with whom we would then walk the path of discipleship. That path of dying to self daily, dying to sin, living unto God, growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, until that glorious day when we see him face to face and we are finally made like him. On that day, Jesus says, we will be rewarded by the Father. That means received by him as if we had lived the life of obedience that Christ had lived. Right? Jesus has done it all. It is through him alone that we have a right standing before God. And so anybody, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what your life has been to this point, forgiveness is offered to you through Christ. 
come to him today. And so those who do know Christ, brothers and sisters, may we live with the hope of that final day in mind. May we die to ourselves, follow the path of Christ. May we be planted as seed and see the harvest that God will bring. Amen.